Man of Steel Answers Insight Commentary Episode 13 Flashbacks? Theft? Maybe. I have so many questions. Then of course there's the question on everyone's mind. Then I'll ask the obvious question. Start asking questions. You're the answer, son. Welcome to Man of Steel Answers Insight Commentary. I'm your Man of Steel apologist, Dr. Awkward. I cover a mosaic of topics for fans who love discussing the Man of Steel and the DC Cinematic Universe. Together, we'll endeavor to answer the questions, criticisms, and controversies raised by Man of Steel and those excited by the anticipated DC Cinematic Universe. In this episode, we will go over the purpose of the flashbacks and the structure of the film. We'll see what we can learn from the classroom scene, we'll tackle whether Clark is a thief, explore some of the themes of the film, finally we'll discuss Jonathan Kent's parenting in saying maybe. We've got a ton to talk about, so let's get right into it. This podcast dives deep into Man of Steel to answer the critics and the confused. This show is not meant to convert anybody, but to celebrate a film that will lead us into the DC Cinematic Universe. Reasonable minds will differ, but this is a show for fans who loved Man of Steel and who love to chew their food. Please be advised that this episode is going to reference religion and scripture in an academic context. I'm not preaching, but using relevant themes as they appear. In a recent poll, 92% of our new Congress self-identify as some sort of Christian. You can reasonably question their sincerity, adherence, or how devout they may be, but nonetheless, religion is a common cultural touchstone to use in interpreting media coming from and addressed to said culture. Moreover, as you may glean from the creative section of the website, the filmmakers have explicitly attempted to adopt religious elements, and it was also a part of Warner Brothers' marketing campaign. Incidentally, if any listener has access to the materials disseminated as a part of that campaign, please contact me. I would love to review a copy. Again, I'm using these elements purely in an academic context. So if it appears that I'm misrepresenting or mistaken about a religious tenant, I'd ask you to keep an open mind, show grace, and then feel free to contact me about the issue. I think avoiding such discussion would be a disservice considering the film itself invokes these things, and I believe that we have the civility, maturity, and open minds to tackle the topic. So without further ado, let's get into it. When we left off, Clark had just completed the oil rig rescue. Note that the flashback is intercut with Clark floating unconsciously under the water to make it clear that these are his memories in this moment and not a complete shift of the story focus to another time or place. The classroom is the first flashback, so the film is structured to make it clear that this is what flashbacks are predominantly meant to be in the film. From a creative standpoint, the purpose of the flashbacks is twofold. One, it's necessary exposition, and two, to show Clark's point of view without inner monologue, narration, heavy-handed dialogue, and the like. Nearly every single flashback is from Clark's perspective, a memory triggered by something in the present. There are a few possible exceptions, but we'll tackle them when we come to them. It's a way of getting into Superman's inner thoughts without turning him into an uncharacteristically chatty person. Why, though? 
What is wrong with a talkative Superman or spoon-feeding the audience Clark's feelings? We will touch on this later when we talk about legalism versus principle-based morality, but I can understand the filmmakers wanting a little distance from and with Clark's thoughts and words. There is a tendency to canonize and indelibly etch into eternity everything and anything Superman says, as if it were scripture. Inevitably, these lines can be used to impeach Superman in the future. Think about some of these lines. I like pink very much, Lois. Lois, I never lie. Sorry I've been away so long. I won't let you down again. In a postmodern era where there is less consensus on universally held values, even something as seemingly innocuous as truth, justice, and the American way can draw ire, criticism, and complaints. So what the filmmakers of Man of Steel seem to be attempting to do is not make a Superman bereft of values or morality, but to avoid the pitfalls of legalistic, codified, simplistic, soundbite, slogan-based morality, which doesn't tend to hold up in the real world or with modern audiences. Unless you take a more fairy tale approach, which has its own merits, but that's another show, and not the approach taken by the filmmakers here. The lack of soundbite, slogan-based morality means that the audience has to think along with Superman about the issues, to wrestle with them and come to their own conclusions, rather than to have them prescribed for them in advance and blindly adhered to as absolutes, or blindly condemned for when they're not successful. And for a fresh and modern take on Superman, that isn't necessarily a bad thing. For a character that's 75 years old, there is a wide spectrum of valid interpretations of Superman. It's unfortunate that there are some who are so closed-minded that they think that there is one and only one valid interpretation, and that everyone who doesn't agree is a fool. If you consider that Jesus' ministry was approximately three years long and covered roughly in four books, yet 2,000 years later, there is still denominational division on interpretation for something considered sacred. It's absolutely absurd to believe that there would be or should be universal consensus on who or what Superman is by comparison. Or, for more secular examples, if you consider how bifurcated or polarized political parties tend to be, literally debating certain issues for centuries, it's kind of crazy to expect unqualified unity on Superman. So at least to me, I think the better approach to Superman is an open mind, tolerance for other views, and recognizing, as I always say, reasonable minds will differ. Everyone has their own concept of Superman in their own head, and everyone is right in a sense. The filmmakers adopt a slightly ambiguous style to make Superman a bit of a tabula rasa, or blank slate, and that allows the viewer to interpret or fill in the blanks with their concept of Superman to their own satisfaction, to a degree. The filmmakers do not completely abandon having their own vision of Superman, but neither do they micromanage you into excluding any room for any personal interpretation, thought, or preference. So, based on this understanding of the flashbacks and the purpose that they serve, we might anticipate that in Batman v Superman, we may still have flashbacks, but fewer of them. As a minor spoiler regarding Batman, we already know that the death of the Waynes has been filmed. And in fact, that's exactly the way the Wayne death was used in The Dark Knight Returns. It was a way of wordlessly accessing Batman's thoughts as he broods in the stately manner. However, in Batman v Superman, I expect there to be far more for Superman to deal with in the present that is less likely to be informed by the past. 
he now has Lois as a sounding board and an ally, and now gifted with flight, he can seek counsel from Martha more regularly. There may be others in his corner with answers to help him with as well, so there's less cause for reflection and navel-gazing when his focus needs to be for the task at hand. So while we may still get flashbacks, I think they are a little less likely for Superman. So if flashbacks are memories triggered by the present, why the classroom scene? Well, Clark just experienced a great cacophony of sound and senses only to have them drowned out by the quiet and peace of submersion under the sea. That parallel of tumult to peace may recall his mother's words and the other time that his senses were assaulted then quieted. The first line in the scene places us in Kansas. This is the first time that Clark's given name is said. Until now, the first-time viewer would only know the character as Kal-El or Greenhorn. Here we see that he is Clark, and it is repeated to make sure that we know his name. The teacher's question, are you listening, Clark, is a subtle joke since it is clear to the audience that Clark's issue isn't the inability to listen, but listening too well. We're given Clark's perspective with his sensory powers, and with respect to his visual powers, I'm going to briefly digress and correct something I said back in episode 3. There, I limited his vision to skeletons and wondered whether he could receive color information or read through the backside of a playing card. However, in my analysis at the time, I had completely overlooked and forgotten about the interrogation scene and Superman's ability to read Dr. Hamilton's ID badge. This seems to be backed up by the making of, which goes into the scene a little bit more, and so I'm going to play that clip. Hey, it's DJ. I'm back to show you creepy x-ray vision, electromagnetic spectrum freakout stuff. Uh, we only see it uh, a couple times in the movie, and it has to do with Clark when he's a boy, when he first experiences it. And the way that Zach talked to us about it was, it wasn't just x-ray vision that he was seeing, it was kind of all frequencies mixed at once. That's why it looks a little weirder than x-ray vision. But he does see through things, but he also sees glows and auras and uh, you know, probably the entire electromagnetic spectrum, just all in one go. And that's why it's so creepy and freaks him out. It, freaked us out too when we first saw it. It is also reminiscent of the John Carpenter movie, They Live, which we looked at many, many times to get the teacher and the little kids to look just that, you know, John Carpenter scary. So from the clip, it's apparent that they were trying to achieve a quasi horror sensibility and help the audience empathize with Clark's fear and unease. A quick note, Clark's classmates aren't all Caucasian, so he grew up with some diversity. Clark runs into the janitor's closet and somehow secures the door. You can see that the door swings outward and the lock is on the outside, and the janitor is in the hall, so it appears that this is a minor continuity gaffe. But nonetheless, within the fiction of the story, Clark has locked himself in. If you need apologetics, perhaps he used his super strength to torque the knob and jam it closed. The teacher fiddles with the knob, but draws back because of Clark's heat vision. It's unclear whether this is instinctual or intentional, but I tend towards the former because the larger context of the scene is that Clark's powers are out of control. So it may be slightly dissonant to have him use his heat visions in such a controlled manner. Note that whether intentionally or not, Clark has harmed another. So it isn't a given that his powers will only be used for good. Additionally, some may say that the teacher getting burned is repayment for her negligence in allowing all these students to gather around the door and further single Clark out. Who knows? <laughs> 
The exposition is all elegant and logical. The teacher says Clark's mother has been called, so we expect the woman to appear to be Clark's mother, and indeed she does. Diane Lane remarks, We get to meet mom, Martha Kent, and of course she's coming to her son's rescue. And one interesting thing that I didn't realize um, until I saw the movie was we get to see through people's faces and into their bodies and how frightening that can be. Certainly he can see through the walls. Certainly he can hear everything that all the other children are saying about him. And as we know, often kids are not known as being the kindest uh, critics one could ever hope for. So I really show up to protect him from the potential of being or feeling ganged up on, bullied, misunderstood. I think being the mother of Clark, uh, Martha has to sort of be always at the ready for such a phone call. We hear what the other kids think of him. We know that he's not allowed to play with other kids, but at the same time, do not judge the Kents too harshly, as they've allowed him to attend public school. And given that Clark has just burned someone, it might be as much for everyone else's protection as it is for Clark's. Clark's tears reveal that he's not invulnerable to emotional distress. And we get this great exchange of dialogue. How can I help you if you won't let me in? Is an incredibly profound in and of itself phrase. But moving on, Clark says, it's too big, mom. And she replies, then make it small. Focus on my voice. So it's the power of mental control and focus to rein in his powers and senses. Diane Lane's performance here is great. You see the worry and the thought and trying to reach Clark without blowing his secret. Pretend it's an island. Can you see it? I see it. Then swim towards it, honey. The ocean metaphor is obviously a part of why Clark's mind goes here, and you see the kind of improvisation that Clark's parents had to go through. And we see that Clark has imagination. He's able to picture the images that his parents impart onto him, something vitally important later. When Clark exits the closet, the first thing he sees is his mother's smiling face, not judgment, or the kids standing around, and he is immediately embraced. We know immediately that his mother loves him. Then Clark asks, what's wrong with me, mom? And his mother looks him in the eye and says, Clark. With an expression that says that there's nothing wrong with you, but also not answering his question. Now, one of the reasons we receive this scene as a flashback after the oil rig, rather than in chronological order, is because with the oil rig scene in the back of our minds, we're meant to be engaged and ask the question, how did Clark turn from somebody who runs away to somebody who runs towards danger? If Clark has been suffering isolation and bullying since childhood and even until adulthood, why does he care? Why does he want to rescue and help people? And in this scene, we get a glimpse of why. His parents. His mother's love is so strong and comforting, the rest of the world fades away when she embraces him. The strength of Martha's love and positive influence on Clark would become less apparent if the story was told chronologically. With the oil rig first, we can look back at Clark's past trials and tribulations with the hope of the hero that he will become, rather than worrying about his torment twisting him into a power alien monster. We're watching his character be forged and refined rather than profiling a future psychopath. The flashback concludes and we immediately cut back to Clark underwater to reinforce this was all his present day memory. Clark wakes up to a parent whale's song to its child. Some speculate that that's an Aquaman Easter egg. I'm skeptical because we're in the extreme North Atlantic. It may well be part of his domain, but I 
think he'd tend towards warmer waters, simply my opinion though. The next interstitial scene really only has two beats, Clark emerging from the ocean to find a disguise and then seeing the bus to trigger the flashback. Regarding the first part, if we haven't already figured it out by the oil rig scene, this again reinforces the idea that Clark doesn't have super speed or flight. Clark could have avoided detection and preserved his secrets with such powers, but it's apparent that he doesn't have them. So instead, Clark must secure a disguise to blend back in. Some take issue with Clark stealing the clothing, and I think the easiest answer I can give to this is get over it. Not to be glib, but there is no conception or version of Superman that hasn't broken the law. Whether he constitutes a thief may depend on your personal perception of justice and the law, but by its letter, no one is a criminal until convicted and not pardoned. And in fact, even the Old Testament distinguishes between action and conviction in Proverbs 6.30, which reads, People do not despise a thief if he steals when he is hungry, but if he is caught, he will pay sevenfold. This is a 3,000-year-old passage with this value or idea being present. Of course, in general parlance, a criminal is somebody who has committed a crime, even if not convicted. However, by this definition, literally Every version of Superman is a criminal. What critics are raising but not stating, other than some sort of petulant nitpick or another ding against their perfect paragon, is the idea that Superman should commit no crime without excuse or justification. However, they pick and choose which excuses or justifications they're willing to accept or which crimes they're willing to tolerate. Superman has always stood for an ideal of justice that goes beyond the letter of the law. However, even there, he's likely defensible. Here, Clark is barefoot, shirtless, and his pants are in tatters. It's unlikely that he has a wallet or cash. He's unable to legally purchase clothing, unlikely to know where free clothing might be available, and unable to answer the questions that would likely accompany asking for the clothing. Granted, Clark isn't in imminent bodily danger, which is typically the requirement for the defense of necessity in Canada. But Clark was raised in the United States, and the American doctrine for the necessity defense is broader. The applicable elements require that a. the harm to be avoided outweighs the danger of the crime, and b. he had no reasonable alternative. Here, the harm is the revelation of his powers and his identity against the value of the clothing. And as we've discussed, he doesn't seem to have a reasonable alternative. Of course, I'm greatly oversimplifying the law. Check your local jurisdictions before relying on this conception of the necessity defense. But anyways, the way to remedy the harm is to simply pay back the value of the clothes. And for all we know, Clark does do that, but off camera. Ultimately, it's not a big deal and is highly unlikely to result in conviction. Now, approaching this scene from a creative perspective, it is a fair question to ask, why did the filmmakers have Clark steal clothing on camera at all? It may simply be purely logistical. In other words, a completely natural, rational, and logical consequence of his heroic part in the oil rig rescue, combined with an explicit motive to show Cavill's physique under the costume and seed in the audience's mind that his strength and his physicality is genuine and not only a suit. However, I think another possibility is that up until this moment, I believe that to our knowledge, Clark has been completely noble and law-abiding without much compromise. 
However, just as the oil rig scene helps disabuse the audience of the belief that this is an all-powerful Superman, as we discussed in our last episode, the practical necessity of stealing disabuses the audience of expecting absolute moral purity from Clark. It's possible that the filmmakers may be telling the audience, we're not going to write Clark out of situations like these. We're not going to have him simply come across abandoned clothing or running into a crazy homeless person or a generous little kid who gives Clark clothing without questions. Instead, it seems to me that this Clark will have to balance and weigh interests realistically to arrive at realistic choices, making his decision-making meaningful and relevant to the real world. In J. Ben's thesis on Man of Steel, he posits that the house number is an intentional biblical reference to Luke 5.36, which in most translations refers to tattered garments, right as Clark is in tattered garments. Whether the number is intentional or mere coincidence, the actual underlying lesson from that verse actually ties to the overall themes of Man of Steel, and perhaps to this scene under the lens that I've just described above. The verse is a parable, saying, or illustration by Jesus, where he says, No one cuts up a new garment to use as a patch on an old, torn garment. Otherwise, you will have ruined the new garment, and the patch from the new cloth won't match the old garment. The illustration is a 2,000-year-old piece of wisdom and common sense, and in context, Jesus was saying that his teachings couldn't simply be used as a patch for the Judaism of the time, which within the narrative of Christianity was heavily codified and law-based, tending to be absolute, what we'll call legalism, but that adherence would have to start anew with his teachings, which were principle-based and tending to require judgment and grace. Very broadly speaking, the narrative is that Jesus proposed an intent-based system over absolute legalistic rule-keeping. For example, whereas traditionally they may keep the Sabbath by publicly fasting and praying aloud, Jesus might say it's all right to honor the Sabbath in your heart without the public display. Whereas traditionally one might say that you've sinned only once you've actually committed adultery, Jesus would say that you've already sinned if you've lusted after your neighbor's wife in your heart. Whereas conversion to Judaism demanded circumcision and ceremony, Jesus can be implied to have accepted conversions of the heart, for example, the thief on the cross. As a reformative figure, some of his teachings tended to show the paradoxes, hypocrisies, or counterintuitive nature of strictly adhering to the law. His essential message was that no human can adhere to all the law perfectly, and thus divine grace was a necessary gap filler to achieve perfection. Of course, legalism is more deterministic and tends to be more clear-cut, whereas principle and intent-based systems are unpredictable and arise on a case-to-case basis. Applied to Man of Steel, you see this theme reoccur again and again, both in story and out. In story, consider how Zod wanted to preserve the old ways with a new planet, having strict, absolute, and inflexible rules, such as considering natural birth and wanting a pre-programmed populace. This is the legalistic old garment. Under this system, what Krypton will be is clear-cut. Jor-El, on the other hand, was so cognizant of needing a new way, he wanted Kal-El to be natural-born, to introduce chance and free will. 
he knew he couldn't accompany Kalal without corrupting him with the old garment's ways, and he wanted Kalal raised human before meeting and speaking with Kalal. Jorel's vision of this completely new thing, the bridging of two people, allowances for chance and choice, means that the outcome is unpredictable and uncertain, but it relies on principles and intentions. So we have the clash of the rigid, legalistic old and the organic, principled new. If we look at this from an external perspective, in many ways, Superman Returns, which has its own virtues and problems, represents an attempt to patch an old garment with pieces of a new garment. You run into continuity issues, you run out of ways to challenge the hero without making him completely impotent relationally, and your film ultimately may be out of step when trying to patch modern sensibilities onto an old concept. So rather than trying to patch the Superman franchise as existing, Man of Steel is a new garment and it should be appreciated as such. Applied to the scene that we're discussing, if you somehow believe in a morally perfect Superman, despite the vast majority of continuity not really supporting that view, then you will tend towards absolute codifications of who Superman is. Superman would never steal, period. However, when you try to patch Superman in order to make him modern or relevant, inevitably he's going to run afoul these absolutes, and they'll stand out like a sore thumb, as in Jesus' parable. So even if Brian Singer is trying to convey Superman's inner struggle or pathos, what the audience comes away with is that Superman is a stalker and invades privacy because he's being held to that old absolute standard. Man of Steel stops trying to patch that version of Superman and instead starts from the ground up with a Superman who doesn't follow absolute rules, but has to balance principles. And so this tiny scene could be a profound statement by the filmmakers to confront stale legalistic absolutes like Superman would never ever steal. Instead, Clark has to weigh protecting his identity with a disguise against stealing. Nothing indicates that Clark enjoys or is comfortable with stealing. In fact, his discomfort may be indicated in the very next scene. Now, remember how I described flashbacks as insights into his head? Well... Even as Clark is adjusting the coat, his brow is furrowed, and you can imagine him subconsciously thinking about the compromise in his own values that he just had to make in order to preserve his identity. And with that in mind, and having just underwent a rescue that cost him his job, worldly possessions, identity, and so on, is it any wonder that his mind goes to the bus incident when he sees a bus? The bus scene also has two beats, leading up to the accident, and then the accident and rescue. Leading up to it, Clark is again insulted, this time as asswipe and dick splash. I have a short blog addressing those insults, but so far Clark has been called heresy, greenhorn, freak, crybaby, weirdo, asswipe, and dick splash. So he's beset with insults, but nonetheless he doesn't react, and he even has others coming to his defense, so Clark knows that there is good in people. Another quick note is that Lana is sitting next to someone of Asian descent, so again, he doesn't grow up in an all-Caucasian community. And since I mentioned Lana, obviously Pete and Lana are nods to the Superman tradition, and an Easter egg for longtime fans, but not necessary for the casual or first-time viewer to know. If you didn't notice, it happens to be a small school bus, typically with a capacity of around 12 passengers. Here, there are six kids, including Lana and Pete, and the driver. These are six kids who've known Clark and his family his entire life, who owe him 
their lives, and who will continue to live with him for the next four years in this small, devout, rural town. Compare that against the 20-plus adult strangers under the overpass and surrounding highways and cars in the tornado scene. Of course, we're not tackling that now, but food for thought when we get there eventually. Clark basically doesn't hesitate to rescue everyone. He looks back for a moment, but we don't know what he's thinking. After pushing the bus to land, he locks eyes with Lana. Clark then saves his bully, again showing that his parents raised him to care above and beyond any slights he may have suffered, and that saving people is in Clark's nature. As a small creative note, the film does a decent job of maintaining the language of its edits. The audio from Pete's mom is already starting, even as we're watching the bus scene rescue. This overlap cut it has already been used on Krypton with Jor-El speaking to the council, Zod on trial, and the crashing of the waves with the Debbie Sue and so on and so forth, and it will be continued to be used throughout the film. So the film is helping you to know when there's been a passage of time, and this may give us insights later. For now, some time has gone by and the next scene is at the farmhouse, which has three beats. Beat one is the farmhouse interior speaking with Pete's mom. Beat two is the farmhouse exterior in the maybe scene. And the beat three is the barn interior for the ship reveal. We enter the Kent homestead and lest there be any ambiguity, Pete's mom is credited as Helen Ross. Again, this film is sparse on dialogue, but the actors all bring a lot to their performances, if you watch carefully. When Mrs. Ross says that it's an act of God and divine providence, you see Jonathan's eyes go back and forth considering his remarks, and then smiling as if a wave of relief has just come over him. He knows that, for now, Clark is safe because of how the incident was perceived. This is the first time that we see Jonathan Kent, and he's called by name. We don't actually hear Martha's name until just before the tornado scene. So again, the filmmakers are deft at densely providing information. Pete Ross sitting there is a little funny, because he was clearly forced by his mother to be there, but completely silent and with hands folded. So he goes from bully to rescuee to somebody powerless with his mom, and suddenly Pete is instantly more sympathetic. Mrs. Ross provides necessary exposition to let us know that this is not an isolated incident, but something really interesting to think about is the fact that Mrs. Ross is even having this conversation in the first place. If you think about it, Mrs. Ross is talking about what the rest of the town is saying about Clark. However, rather than gossiping behind Clark's back, this good Christian woman brings it right into their living room and is discussing it to their face. That degree of transparency, honesty, and forthrightness may help account for the Kent's ability to mitigate any suspicion of Clark over the next intervening years. Again, when we get to it, contrast that against the tornado scene. Smallville actually gives you an opportunity to explain yourself in person or talk rather than acting behind your back. So Jonathan recognized that the threat has been averted and heads out to speak to his son. So the farmhouse exterior scene makes it clear that Clark has been eavesdropping, which means that now he has control of his superhearing powers. The first words out of Clark's mouth are both defense and motive. I just wanted to help. So we know explicitly why Clark did what he did. Not out of obligation, not out of guilt or pathos, but genuine altruism. However, we also know that he knows that Jonathan may disapprove of some aspect of the rescue. While Jonathan doesn't doubt Clark's motives, he says, I know you did. And then he affirms that they've talked about Clark keeping it a secret. And then we get those two lines. What was I supposed to do? Just let them die? Maybe. 
To me, it's a bit incredible how much criticism this short exchange has resulted in, and it appears to be driven predominantly by three things. One, people who stop thinking or listening after the maybe. Two, people who irrationally believe that Jonathan is saying Clark should have let the kids die. And three, people who consider this an uncomfortable departure from tradition. Let's unpack and address each of these. For people who stop thinking and listening after the maybe, I think this view might be excusable if you've only watched the film once, but if you've watched it multiple times and are still stuck on this, I suspect your subsequent viewings were colored by prejudgment rather than the open mind required to interpret the scene. From a creative perspective, I believe the intention of the scene was to shock the audience and cause them to perk up, sit on the edge of their seats attentively, and carefully listen to the rest of the scene to figure out what Jonathan meant. Jesus often used this tactic in his sermons to shock the audience and make them search for his actual meaning. For example, whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. Or, I come not to bring peace, but to bring a sword. Or, whomever does not hate his father, mother, wife, children, siblings, and even their own life cannot be my disciple. Taken literally, out of context, and without analysis, these would all be crazy, confrontational, and out of character. Unfortunately, I think that the filmmakers may have given general audiences a little too much credit in having faith that we'd be able to digest challenging material. Instead, many viewers approach the scene purely viscerally, without processing the larger context and what is actually said. Structurally, this is problematic because this is our first impression of Jonathan, and viewed completely superficially, all you get is a stern parent scolding Clark for doing a heroic thing. This is our first shocking impression. Some of the audience is unable to overcome their shock, and they make a stupid snap judgment which they stubbornly lock into place, and then refuse to listen to or imagine any other view or outcome from then on. In that moment, they decide that Jonathan is a monster, an enemy, and a paranoid sociopath, and ignore all evidence to the contrary. If we had some preceding scenes to characterize Jonathan's obvious affection for Clark, perhaps there would be less outcry, but I can't fault the filmmakers for not catering to those of us who make snap judgments. Instead, the shock is that continual theme of the filmmakers making sure that you understand the world that we're dealing with. That Jonathan confronts Clark with the possibility shows that this is a world where that question can even be asked, when Superman traditionally tends to be written out of such quandaries. We'll talk about the difference between this world and more idyllic Superman traditions a little later. Now on repeat viewing, with the full context of the film, is there any question that Jonathan loves his son and that Clark loves him back? Is there any question that Jonathan values the lives of others and values saving people? In the tornado scene, he puts his family first, he rescues a stranger's child, and he directs complete strangers to safety. Is there any question that Jonathan is honest, patient, and believes in Clark? Of course, we don't have the benefit of those subsequent scenes when viewing the movie for the first time. However, rather than passing judgment and turning off our brains, I wish more would keep an open mind and put on their thinking caps as the filmmakers intended, to be engaged and figure out why Jonathan would even suggest such a controversial thing. If people would keep an open mind, engage, and listen, they would hear 10 seconds and two lines of a gentle rebuke 
rebuke, and then the next 240 seconds and 30 lines of a father comforting his son, giving him purpose, a promise, a hope, sonship, and love. Consistent with the parenting we saw in Martha in the previous flashback. Sadly, instead you have people trying to forward our second issue. And that is people who irrationally believe that Jonathan Kent is saying that Clark should have let the kids die. Now, I tend to be a little frustrated by this position because that's not what Jonathan said. He said maybe, and the word maybe literally means perhaps, possibly, a mere probability, in that it is a possibility, which in actual fact it is. It is literally a possible outcome, and the word maybe doesn't mean should. Yet somehow this position is often repeated, and when a position is purely counterfactual and explicitly contrary to what is actually said in the film, I almost believe that there's no point in answering such criticism because you can't fight that non-existent movie that they've made up in their own heads with facts. However, since this gets raised so much, I will take a crack at it. So, unsurprisingly, people who pretend like Jonathan said that the kids should have died haven't thought through their position, so let's do that for them right now. Consider what it means if Jonathan is saying that the kids should have died. He isn't a psychopath that just wants those kids dead for no reason. Under this theory, he's saying that it would be better for them to be dead than for Clark's secret to be exposed. Why? Because the risks, dangers, and fears of what might happen if Clark's secret was exposed is so great, high, and real that it is worth the lives of six innocent children and the driver to avoid. Well, the kids didn't die. So that means that those risks, dangers, and fears are now imminent. If the danger was so real and Clark's secret was that important, do you think that it is more important than their farm, than staying in Smallville? Martha says, it's only stuff, Clark. Do they stick around waiting for this horrible outcome for quote-unquote only stuff? Of course not. The very fact that they are still in Smallville, still at home, Still having this conversation means that Jonathan's fears, whatever they may be, aren't necessarily worth the lives of six kids, and that those fears aren't imminent in this situation. It means that Jonathan never meant that those kids should have died. If he meant that, he would have packed up his family in the middle of the night and disappeared to avoid those consequences worth the lives of six innocent kids. Jonathan didn't mean should. He meant, and he said, maybe, as a way of illustrating the gravity of the choices that Clark would have to make. I wish I could explain this more elegantly, but I'm a little hot under the collar about this particular belief. Worse still, those prone to this illogical belief are unlikely to be able to follow the logic of this argument and proof. So if this helps you argue, I'm glad, but don't be surprised if it goes right over their heads, and in that case, just don't sweat it. So moving on to our third category of complaints about that scene, people who consider this an uncomfortable departure from tradition. Here... It isn't so much a lack of comprehension, but more a clash of expectations. Typically, the person raising these kinds of complaints knows that Jonathan loves Clark and probably interprets Jonathan as paranoid and overprotective, but feels that Jonathan isn't completely justified in his fears and rejects the idea that Pa Kent is anything but an ideal father. Their conception of ideal is one that is completely supportive, optimistic, and encouraging. They don't want Jonathan sharing his fears with Clark, and perhaps they don't want him scolding Clark. They might want some Midwestern bravado and naive optimism over pragmatism. Personally, I love the Jonathan that we got. 
with hopes, fears, and flaws, but who loved Clark absolutely. I'd suggest that Jonathan's approach is informed by and distinguishable from other Pa Kents because of Clark's powers. As we've illustrated with the oil rig episode and earlier during the disguise discussion, it is apparent that Clark doesn't have flight or super speed, at least flash-like super speed, growing up. Consider what that means for keeping his secret. Those powers are an essential lubricant towards making traditional superheroing work because they allow Clark to do his heroics and then disappear without sacrificing his secret. From day one, the Clark in TV's Smallville had super speed and eventually was known as the red-blue blur, able to enter intervene while essentially invisible. Most versions of Superman developed flight early on, which means every one of those Clarks always had an escape route, no matter what he did, by simply flying straight up. Contrast that against Man of Steel's Clark, who can't move faster than the eye can see or swoop in from nowhere. When he's done, he's, he's still there for everyone to witness. So of course, Jonathan Kent, under these circumstances, puts a higher premium on secrecy because Clark has to be far more deliberate about the protection of his secret without super speed or flight powers. Additionally, obviously, this is a more realistic world and not the typical trope-suspended, stylized realities where secrets are conveniently kept and maintained. On the Superman homepage, Neil Bailey has a wonderful compilation of Smallville TV stats, tracking all sorts of things and affectionately titled The Smallville KO Count. Lois Lane, who wasn't even in most of the first four years of the show, has been knocked unconscious 52 times, on several occasions allowing the convenient preservation of Clark's secret. Don't get me wrong, I'm not condemning Smallville for that. You adopt the tropes that are appropriate for the type of world that you set your story in. I'm simply highlighting the fact that it should be plainly apparent that Man of Steel doesn't take place in that world. And although the delivery and the tone is different, you might be surprised to know that the content of the Superman 78 scene with Pa Kent is remarkably similar. It actually opens with Jonathan scolding Clark for showing off, and then Clark immediately attempting to justify and defend himself. Pa Kent empathizes with Clark's motives, just as Jonathan does with Clark in Man of Steel. 78 Clark then poses a counter-argument, just as Man of Steel Clark does, and Pa Kent responds by expressing his fears. He says, We thought people would come and take you away, because when they found out the things you could do, and it worried us a lot. Jonathan Kent does the same by helping Clark to understand the scope of his secret. Then both fathers proceed to comfort their sons and instill a sense of purpose into both. The main visceral difference is that Man of Steel Clark is visibly upset. His voice is cracking, he's pained and on the verge of tears. And he's actually played by a 13-year-old boy. In Superman 78, Clark is frustrated and practically angry, but he's composed and it is a 21-year-old man playing 17. The pain and the pathos of Man of Steel may leave the audience uncomfortable if they don't bother to listen to the words or think about what they've seen. As we've discussed earlier, the reason that we open with the oil rig rescue is because it's meant to be in the back of our minds even as we empathize with young Clark. We are meant to remember the hope and the nobility demonstrated by Clark at the oil rig, so we know that Clark finds a way to reconcile his dad's wishes and his own inclination to help. We're meant to view this 
scene knowing that Clark gets past and through it to become a hero, organically, and that the pain is laced with a future hope that we know is coming. We are not meant to disengage our intellect and our memories and be so empathic that all we get from the scene is Clark's pain. We're not to arrive at the misplaced belief that with a perfect father, there should be no pain. That hardly seems to be the case. I won't go down the rabbit hole of God the Father and the Passion of the Christ, but I will bring up another principle which causes some to recoil at Jonathan's initial comments and which is often summarized with the biblical phrase, hiding one's light under a bushel. The antiquated phraseology comes from an obsolete translation of bowl, and the light may metaphorically represent a number of things, but at least one interpretation is that one's gifts and talents are meant to be shared and displayed to impact the world, not hidden or suppressed, which would be like lighting a lamp and then covering it with a bowl. Although this was a parable of Jesus, this goes back to my earlier comments about simplifying down morality to absolute slogans rather than appreciating the nuance of any given situation. We're not called to show off our gifts under any and all circumstances. As Pa Kent says in Superman 78, it's not to score touchdowns. If confronted by detractors alleging that Jonathan is trying to stifle Clark's promise based on some version of this parable, making it allegedly antithetical to Christian values or the Superman tradition, I think the retort is that Jonathan clearly believes in Clark's promise, more on that later, and that he is primarily addressing timing. This concept of waiting is a common biblical and secular theme. On the biblical front, I'm just going to quickly rattle off some examples that the familiar might recognize and for the unfamiliar to research on their own if so inclined. We have Sarah and Abraham awaiting children, Joseph awaiting the fulfillment of his prophetic dreams, David awaiting the fulfillment of his anointing, Jesus beginning his ministry at 30, and so on and so forth. Many anointed or nominated must wait before coming into their appointment. Just because you can do something and are meant to do something doesn't mean that now is the moment to do it. A simple secular example is procreating and raising a family. While one becomes physically capable of reproduction at a certain age, few would suggest that the soonest possible age that one can procreate is the optimal age to start raising a family. That doesn't mean that they aren't capable of sex, that sex isn't good, that having a family isn't good, or that they shouldn't have either of those things ever. It just means that now is not the best time for a variety of reasons. Being ready in capability doesn't mean that one is ready in all regards. Even though Clark has powers, which can help people, it doesn't mean that he's ready to tackle that responsibility or to make the hard calls, to juggle his secret, and to deal with potential exposure or failure yet, and a whole litany of other issues. There are a ton of other secular examples, but sex is a useful metaphor to illustrate what the maybe scene means without the abstract stakes of the world-learning extraterrestrials walk among us. Like any allegory, it becomes imperfect if you try to draw parallels too closely, but I think this might help some wrap their heads around why Jonathan would say, maybe. If you'll indulge me, imagine the following. At age 13, Clark begins to have unprotected sex. There is a pregnancy scare with Petra Ross. She could be pregnant. This has happened with Lana and the Fordham girl too. Clark tells Petra that he'll do the right thing by her and raise the baby and marry her 
if need be. However, thank goodness, it turns out that she wasn't pregnant and he doesn't have to. Jonathan confronts Clark, who asks, What was I supposed to do? Drive her to the clinic? When Jonathan then says, maybe, he is simply confronting Clark with the seriousness and the gravity of the choices that he'll have to make if he continues on this path while he isn't ready. Jonathan isn't staking out a position. He isn't saying that Clark must or should have driven Petra to the clinic. Jonathan is using the recent scare, fresh in Clark's mind, to illustrate that if Clark continues as he is, he may have to make these tough kinds of decisions. And Jonathan would rather Clark not have to face these decisions until he's ready. Like we've said above, Jonathan isn't saying that Clark isn't capable of procreating, that sex is bad, or that having a wife or a family is bad. Jonathan is saying that having a family now implicates much more than just taking responsibility for the child, and that those implications are important enough and frightening enough that Clark would have to consider the alternative in Jonathan's hypothetical choice. Now note that the choice only serves as an instructive illustration if Clark has been raised to find that these interests are in conflict. If Clark was never raised to take responsibility for any child of his, then he wouldn't care if Petra decided to keep the child. And if Clark was never raised to consider going to the clinic a grave choice, then that option would be effortless. So the fact that the illustration is difficult demonstrates Clark's values. The illustration is so effective and profound that Clark actually plays it safe for the next four years before he's confronted with the issue again. So there are insights that we can find in this illustration in Man of Steel. As we know, Jonathan isn't saying that Clark can never use his gifts or never stand before the human race. He's saying that if you choose to use your gifts now, you may have to decide between saving someone and your secret identity before you're ready to tackle that decision. Like in the above illustration, the gravity of that possibility only has meaning to Clark if he was raised correctly by his parents to value life. If Clark doesn't care about other people, then letting six kids drown is no big deal. It also indicates that the Kents properly raised Clark to be responsible with his secret. If Clark doesn't value keeping his secret, then discarding it for the rescue of people would be equally effortless. At the beginning of the tornado scene, Clark is sharing his frustration at playing it safe, which means that they have been safe for the past four years. And what that means is that Clark took Jonathan Kent's illustration to heart, and he was spared such decisions until then. Note too that just as a teenage pregnancy can be multifaceted, does he help with the child, does he marry the mother, does he start a family, so too is Clark's secret. There's the revelation of his powers, the revelation of his extraterrestrial origin, and the revelation of his identity. In this context, Jonathan's tornado scene sacrifice was buying Clark more time to be ready. And in our metaphor, that might be like raising Clark's baby while he continued to have a normal teenage life and until he was ready to be a dad himself. So if we boil it all down, maybe doesn't mean should. Should would have meant fleeing Smallville and maybe was an illustration rather than an actual position. It was an illustration so powerful that Clark cooperated with Jonathan in keeping his secret for the next four years. Wow, all of that was to get to and past maybe. So let's quickly break down some more of this dialogue. 
Jonathan says, there's more here at stake than just our lives, Clark, or the lives of those around us. When the world finds out what you can do, it's going to change everything. Our beliefs, our notions of what it means to be human, everything. People are afraid of what they don't understand. And so what we get here is a glimpse into Jonathan's concerns, which, as we mentioned before, are the same as Pa Kent's fears in Superman 78. We can really dig into this, but maybe another time. What I want you to take away from this right now, more than anything else, is that Jonathan says, when the world finds out. When, not if. This reinforces the point that Jonathan is concerned with timing. He isn't shaming Clark, and he isn't saying that Clark must hide forever. He's saying, keep the secret for now, until you're ready, because one day the world will find out. In the next few lines, Clark says, is she right? Did God do this to me? Tell me. And implicit in this is that Clark was raised to believe in God. And again, we can speculate on the degree of adherence, devoutness, sincerity, etc. But more importantly, again, what I want you to take away from this is how incredibly honest and forthright Jonathan is. Mrs. Ross and Clark just gave Jonathan an easy out if he was a weaker and dishonest man. All he would have to say is, yes, it was God, and God moves in mysterious and unknowable ways, scapegoating the God that Clark was raised to know. However, instead, he sees Clark's pain, and then he seeks to answer it with the truth. So with that, we finally come to the ship reveal. And so with an episode filled with religious parallels and um, citations, in this moment, if you'll allow me again, it could be interpreted very much as a confirmation. And if you're not familiar with religious practices, a confirmation, uh, to my understanding, is a subsequent ceremony, either to a baptism or bar mitzvah, later in life, to affirm or confirm, therefore the name confirmation, many of the same principles adopted in the first ceremony. Confirmation means that you're accepting responsibility for your faith and your destiny. So for a child who was baptized as a baby with little or no free will, or for a 13-year-old boy with a limited conception of adulthood, the confirmation comes later in life to affirm the values of those past ceremonies. Uh, under this lens, you could imagine that Clark's transport to Earth is either his baptism into Earth's atmosphere, and that this talk is a confirmation. Alternatively, you can view this talk as his bar mitzvah, and then the later scene at age 17 as his confirmation. Uh, once again, a confirmation means accepting responsibility for your faith and your destiny. And as David Goyer is Jewish on his mother's side and he attended Hebrew school, I'm inclined to go with the bar mitzvah interpretation here. A common misconception is that the bar mitzvah means that the child is fully a man, but it's not being a full adult in every sense of the word. For example, procreating, going out into the world on one's own, earning a living, or raising a family. And this is made abundantly clear by the Talmud, which sets those milestones later. Rather, it's simply the age where a person is held responsible for their actions. And here, Jonathan is being honest with Clark out of love, but he's also putting a burden and responsibility onto Clark, the knowledge of what he is and the quest to understand why. This information and burden was carried by Jonathan and Martha alone to this point. They did the best that they could in an era before the internet, and with limited resources and access. Dylan Sprayberry, the actor who played Clark, highlights the research that they've done for Clark. When Jonathan goes to get the command key out of his little desk area, that is really something cool to look at because you might not notice it because the scene goes by a lot quicker, 
but this is actually where he does all of his research about Clark and about alien sightings and, and spaceships that people have seen through the, the years that he's had Clark. In my own headcanon, I imagine Jonathan Kent buying Time Life's Mysteries of the Unknown book series to try and get a handle on how humanity views aliens. And it's not favorable, let me tell you. I also imagine Jonathan taking the command key to Kansas State and running away terrified. A discovery like that, can you imagine any scientist stopping at just one question? And as those unanswerable questions begin to mount, Jonathan would get an idea of what Clark might be confronted with if his secret ever got out. And so Jonathan resolves doubly to protect Clark after that encounter. So now that Clark is old enough and he has undergone a talk and a ceremony to understand the gravity of his choices and decisions, he may not fully understand it at this point, but he has been invited to the table to participate in the discussion. And Clark is true to his parents' wishes. As mentioned before, Clark was so impacted by this ceremony, this moment, that he plays it safe for the next four years. And this moment continues to ring in his memory even 20 years later. It's funny that there is so much good stuff, heart, emotion, virtue, promise, hope, and love, in this scene which vindicates and justifies Jonathan Kent and completely requires a line-by-line analysis, but I've already gone way over my time. So I'm just going to have to cut it off here, but don't worry. We'll obviously revisit Clark's parenting in the future and in the full context of the film. All right, I think I've rambled on long enough. Man of Steel Answers Insight Commentary is a proud member of the Superman Podcast Network. So here are some promos for the network shows that I suggest you check out if you want to extend your enjoyment of the Superman mythos. Gathered together from the far reaches of the internet are assembled a network of podcasts dedicated to the first and greatest superhero, Superman. Superman. Superman Podcast Network is dedicated to covering all aspects of the Superman legend, featuring Superman and Batman, Golden Age Superman, the Superman Fan Podcast, the DC Comics Presents Show, From Crisis to Crisis, a Superman Podcast, It's Superman, the Schuster Herald Podcast, The Kara Zero Podcast, Superman Forever Radio, Superman Lives, Up, Up and Away, Cadmus to Crisis, a Superboy Podcast. The Amateur Steel, a John Henry Allen's podcast. The world's best podcast. And Radio Kale from supermanhomepage.com. Join hosts Michael Bradley, John Wilson, Billy Hogan, Charlie Niemeyer, Russell Brad, Jeffrey Taylor, Michael Bailey, Scott Gardner, Sam Rizzo, Danny Sapp, Bob Fisher, Bruce Moe, Mario Benessi, Drew Wintermeyer, David Byer, Matthew Epps. I'm Isaac. I'm Adam. Dave Eunice and co host Scotty V. At supermanpodcastnetwork.com. Thanks so much for listening. I just love discussing this stuff. And if you've been sticking with me, hopefully you do too. I'm genuinely grateful for each and every listener. And I'll hope you'll join us at manofsteelanswers.com. That way, if you've got a question you want answered or insight you want to share or commentary to make, you can post in the comments for all your like-minded apologists to see. Or you can email me at mosaic at manofsteelanswers.com. If you like what you've heard, please review the show on iTunes and subscribe. This is Dr. Awkward, your DC Cinematic Universe apologist, signing off. See you next time.
you're the answer, son. How would you explain it? A woman in Wisconsin is doing the dishes when suddenly she's possessed by a terrifying feeling. She's positive that her young daughter has just been in an accident. She quickly makes a desperate phone call, only to learn that her feeling was true. How would you explain this? A dozen people around the world who never met each other describe an encounter with a being from space, and their descriptions of the creature match almost exactly. And how do you explain this? A man's heart stops beating in a hospital, and he sees a blinding light that doesn't frighten him, but fills him with an indescribable feeling of peace. And how can you explain the growing number of people who feel that they've had a brush with something beyond our everyday understanding? Maybe no one can fully explain these things, but they can no longer be ignored. That's why Time Life takes a serious look into this world with a remarkable new series, Mysteries of the Unknown, to provide an objective and comprehensive look at what may lie beyond our ordinary reality. How can you explain this? Four men are drawn to an ancient Anglo-Saxon fort, site of a fierce battle. They enter the shadows of a ring of trees, and without warning, one of them is grabbed by an unseen force, lifted five feet in the air, and suspended for 30 full seconds. There are so many hints of a world more remarkable than we ever imagined, and of abilities that we barely suspect. Send for your first volume on a free trial basis and see if you can explain these things away. To order your first book, Mystic Places, call 1-800-231-8300. Examine it for 10 days. Keep it and pay just $12.99 plus shipping and handling. Other books will follow, one about every other month. Keep only the ones you want, cancel anytime. Call 1-800-231-8300. Chicago. A man is about to get on a routine flight. Suddenly he pauses. He doesn't know why, but he's got to walk away. An hour later, the plane goes down in flames. It's dismissed as chance. Britain. A woman has a sudden image of a black mountain that's moving, with children trapped underneath it. Two hours later, a Welsh schoolhouse is buried in an avalanche of coal slag. It's dismissed as coincidence. Northern Texas. An unidentified flying object is reported by at least a dozen people. Although there were no storms in the area, it's dismissed as lightning. Now, Time Life Books announces an important new library, Mysteries of the Unknown, a series that explores the most controversial phenomena of our time and tells you everything that can be known. The Midwest. A mother feels a sharp pain in her right hand. Far away at that exact same moment, her daughter screams as she touches a hot pan. Just chance? Or is it telling us something about our own untapped capabilities? Mysteries of the Unknown goes deeper into unexplained phenomena than ever before. It documents the facts and uncovers what people were never willing to talk about. Stonehenge. A visitor fashions a wire antenna in the shape of an ancient Egyptian symbol. He points it at the stones, and a surge of power rushes into his arm, knocking him unconscious. Was it all in his mind, or was it much more than that? To experience Mysteries of the Unknown, examine your first volume, Mystic Places, for ten days free. Then decide if you want to dismiss it. To order your first book, Mystic Places, call 1-800-342-2700. Examine it for ten days. Keep it in page S1299 plus 298 shipping and handling. Other books will follow, one about every other month. Keep only the ones you want. Cancel at any time. 
Call 1-800-342-2700. You're the answer, son.